I know we just finished our Encounter with Christ series, so we were in Luke uh, all summer. And today, our main text is also going to be from Luke, even though we finished that series. Luke 6 will be our text. So we're going to survey a couple other texts as well, um, but we're going to start mainly in Luke. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the Word. Holy God, we are so thankful for the ways in which you've already been here, working in us, and um, we come before you now, and we ask that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, and would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, so I was talking to a family earlier. They will remain nameless, but I was talking to a family earlier, um, and I asked them, I guess they live in Shoreline. I just learned that Seattle has a different school schedule than Shoreline. I'm learning that. But I was talking to them, and they said, I was, I was saying, are you, are you excited to go back to school? And the kids were responding with a resounding no, right? They didn't want to go back to school. And I asked the parents, well, are you ready to go back to school? Or are you ready for your kids to go back to school? And they gave me one of these. They went like this. No. We love our children. We want to keep them with us all the time. And so as we, they were talking, um, I was thinking about the ways in which summer is just such a relaxing time for many of us. But as it comes to a close, as we move into the fall, all this flexibility that we had before kind of loses itself. Like, life can start to feel hectic. Uh, It can start to be filled with activities, new events, new schedules, new rhythms. Life can start to feel overwhelming. So, for the students in the room, many of us have to juggle new work schedules, new semesters, writing papers, um, balancing just new rhythms in life. And then, for also many of us, work weeks that were free become full. Um, even if they don't change in schedule, it just feels more manageable when it's sunny outside and there's something to do. Or also, many of us are in major transitions. So maybe you have a kid who is going to school in kindergarten for the first time, or middle school or high school, these major transition points. Maybe your job is going to look different in the fall than it does in the summer. Maybe you're starting a new job. Maybe your job has kind of run its course, and you have to do something else for the upcoming season. Maybe someone who's close to you is struggling with an illness, and you're having to learn how to balance just what life looks like as we move into a new season. How do we keep everything ticking? So this isn't a uniquely Christian thing either, right? Like, the idea of work-life balance, we've heard that, right? Like books, articles, podcasts, videos, all of these things try and give us things like pointers, life hacks, so that we might be able to breathe a little bit, so that we might be able to manage life a little better. So in light of all of this, when I looked at the preaching topic for this upcoming week and saw that we're supposed to talk about faith and work, I immediately thought, about faith and work in light of the Sabbath. So hear me. What I'm going to say isn't a new idea. Right? This understanding can be traced back to rabbinic readings 
back in Genesis, back in the time of Christ. I want to stress that this is one way among many to make sense of how God is speaking to us. Just one way. And as we read the scriptures this morning, may we allow the scriptures to read us. Can we allow God to open us up to the word of God in our lives? So many of you know that I was raised in a Pentecostal church that was pretty holiness-focused, and my parents even more so. So when my dad was growing up and Sunday hit, they didn't work. They didn't work at all. So like many proponents of Judaism today, they didn't drive to church. They walked. They didn't do yard work or they didn't do work work. During, the, during Sunday, they rested because that's what the Ten Commandments say to do. Exodus 28. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days a week you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So this filtered down to me when I was growing up. I wasn't allowed to do homework on Sundays. So I could do, get this, I could do a crossword puzzle or I could read, but homework constituted work. And so I wasn't allowed to do homework. And also we lived in the country, so driving really wasn't, um, like not driving and walking, that wasn't an option for us. We lived out in the sticks. But I couldn't watch TV Or I couldn't play sports on the Sabbath. So I could play soccer outside with my brothers. But if I wanted to actually play with my team on Sunday, that wouldn't work for us. So I actually never played a final game or a championship game on Sunday. Ever in my life. Because that would constitute work. So I never did any of this. Sunday was meant for rest. So obviously that sounds a bit extreme, right? Like, I understand the heart of what my parents were trying to instill in us. They're trying to say, hey, we keep one day completely holy for God. It is completely for God. But as soon as you start to think about that critically, then the questions start popping up. Like, what is the definition of work? Or, how come this is work and how come this isn't work? How come I could play soccer in the backyard, but if I went 10 minutes down the road to the fields with more friends, that wouldn't work for us. What constituted work? Those are the kind of questions that I had growing up. That's the upbringing I had. So in many ways, these questions are the same kind of questions that Luke brings up for us today. The religious context at the time devoted so much time and effort and writing to decide and determine what is work and what isn't work. What could be done on Sabbath and what couldn't be done on the Sabbath. We still follow this now. I mean, people do this stuff now. So if you have your Bibles, take a look at Luke 6, 1 through 11. Luke 6, verse 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not heard and have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, 
which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also, he gave it to those who were with him. And then he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is God's word. So Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. Maybe I'm the only one who has taught this, but I think for many of us, we've come to think of the Sabbath as if it's a break from work, right? It's a break from work where the upside is that we'll be able to return to work rested and ready to start going again. That's what we think the Sabbath is. So, anyone grow up on a farm? Anyone? No? Well, I grew up kind of on a hobby farm. My dad was a CEO, but we had like one chicken, one cow, (laughs) one sheep. (laughs) Whatever the interest was, we kind of went from place to place. We ended up with peacocks, which we still have now. So we didn't grow things per se. We grew like one thing, but... Our neighbors around us were all farmers. And the idea of rotating your crops is huge, right? So to let the, the land rest fallow is meant to allow the land to replenish itself, right? You don't grow on these one uh, sections of your land and you rotate your crops and then that way you always have land that's refilling itself or replenishing its nutrients, Just like farmers do with their land, we think that the Sabbath is oftentimes a mechanism that allows us to be more productive. So whether that's taking one day off a week, or two, maybe a month, or maybe even a year, all of this is meant to look at the Sabbath as a productivity tool. My friends, living the Sabbath is supposed to be so much more than this. You see, looking at our Luke passage today, there's two things that I want to highlight. Two things. The first thing is this. When Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, don't miss that Jesus is taking Israel's legal structures and showing how they have been inconsistent. So he's showing how they missed the point. The way God's word had been applied had missed the heart of what God had actually said. So Israel had heard God's word, but they'd misheard what he was saying. So it's the difference between hearing and listening. Hearing is the act of perceiving sound by the ear. Right? It's involuntary. A sound happens, we hear it, unless we have hearing impairment. We hear things. 
But listening, on the other hand, involves our processing of sound, and it's our processing of sound to derive meaning from words and sentences. Hearing and listening. So listening requires intentional, conscious action. Israel heard God's word, but misheard what was being said. Think about it like this. If someone says, I don't have words to thank you, or they say, words can't express how thankful I am for you. Well, they're saying they don't have words to say thank you, but what are they actually doing? We all know what they're doing. They're saying thank you. Right? The same thing goes here. What's being heard isn't what is being said. And the way that we're listening to what's being heard doesn't connect to itself. Are we tracking? We're tracking? Right? So if like a sound goes over, off over here and we hear it, it could just be a sound. If someone says something and we listen to it, there's a processing that happens. It takes on another mode or another meaning. So in the same way, even though Israel had heard God's command back in Exodus and Deuteronomy to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, they had not heard what God was saying in his command to observe the Sabbath. So in Mark, we have the idea where Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking the existing concept of law and Sabbath, and he's subverting it so that we might be able to both hear and listen to what God is saying. And the second thing we want to look at in this passage is Jesus is showing that the Sabbath was not meant to be a tool of oppression. Right? The Sabbath is not meant to be a tool of oppression. When Jesus claimed lordship over the Sabbath, he was showing how the Sabbath was not a tool that is meant to be useful. The Sabbath isn't meant for usefulness. For Israel, the Sabbath had become an apparatus of entrapment. So look how the religious leaders are using the Sabbath. Look what they do with the Sabbath. Verse, uh, verse 7 here. And the scribes and Pharisees watched to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But friends, the Sabbath isn't meant to be useful. God's not supposed to be useful. God's not an object that we master. The Sabbath isn't an object that we master. Right? It's not a vehicle or mechanism that we just add on to our lives. So as Christians, it's easy to read this text and look down at the Pharisees. Like, it's easy to say, well, that's a misuse of what God's actually trying to do there. But unlike the Pharisees, we may not use the Sabbath as a way of furthering oppression. But are we ever guilty of using the Sabbath to further productivity? That's a question we need to ask. Like, we may not use Sabbath adherence to determine who's in and who's out, exactly what we see the Pharisees doing in this text, but do we ever adhere to the Sabbath out of some kind of greedy ambition? Do we ever do it for a sense of our own gain? Do we do the Sabbath because we think blessing and obedience have this correlated relationship? If you have your Bibles, everyone turn to Genesis 2 now. And this tells us the basis 
for why God commands the Sabbath in the first place. This is Genesis 2. Actually, we'll start one verse before that. Genesis 1.31. So for context, we're at the end of the sixth day of creation here. The world has been made. Remember, the Spirit was brooding over the depths. Then God says, let there be light. Then day and night happens. Um, Water and land are made. Vegetation, plants, seasons, animals. All that has been made has been made. And then humans are made at the end of day six. So verse 31. God saw... Everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. Now catch this, verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So oftentimes when we tell this creation story, we tell it as if humanity is the climax of creation. Right? It makes sense. We're, we're humans. We're the center of the story. So we think. But did you notice what happened on day 7? Let's look at it again. Verse 1. We hear that the heavens and the earth and everything in the earth is finished. All the multitude finished. And then verse 2 happens. We hear that God finished the work that he had done on the seventh day, not the sixth day. So this begs the question, what was left to be finished? He just made everything the sixth day, and now what's he making on the seventh day? If everything on earth has been made, doesn't that mean that there's no more work to be done? If so, what does God finish in verse 2? So this is a question that theologians, scholars, they've puzzled over for centuries. We'll not get too technical, but does everyone see the word rested in your Bible? And he rested on the seventh day. This is where English betrays us a little bit. So the Hebrew word, menua, which we translate in English as rest, doesn't just, that just doesn't capture what the Bible is actually saying, what the Hebrew is saying. In English, we don't have a word that perfectly conveys what menua means. But Hebrew scholars, theologians, biblical experts have agreed that this word should not be understood solely as a period of rest or inactivity. It's not just inactivity or uh, separation from action. Instead, this is much better understood if you think about the concept of delighting in something. So there's a theologian at Duke who puts it this way. The creation of Manua on day seven completed creation and gave to all of creation its ultimate purpose and meaning. Without Manua, creation, though beautiful, would be without an all-encompassing eternal objective, which is to participate in the life of God forever. So Sabbath, being the climax of creation, is thus the goal towards which all our living should move. 
So the Sabbath is our animating heart, suffusing every moment with the potential for joy and peace. Sabbath is the interpretive key that helps us understand what all the moments and members of life mean. He goes on and says, To forget or deny the Sabbath is thus to withhold our lives from being the most authentic, from being their most authentic purposes in God. It's to claim that our worrisome ways are better or count more than the intentions of God. So it's to put ourselves at the center of creation, the very definition of sinfulness, rather than God's own delight. Do we understand what's being said here? Unlike how many of us have thought or heard it said about the Sabbath, the Sabbath isn't just a day or an event that breaks and happens in our week. Right? It's not an add-on to our week. It's not a legal restraint. It's not a break that we take. The Sabbath isn't about productivity or efficiency or legality. It's not cultural sanction. The Sabbath isn't a life hack. Instead, the Sabbath is and is supposed to be the very climax of the creation narrative in Genesis. Right? The Sabbath is the goal towards which all our living should move. It completes the creation of the universe. And it's the culmination of habits and days that express gratitude for and joy in the works of God around us. So catch this. To live the Sabbath is to participate regularly in the delight that marked God's own response to creation that was wonderfully made. A Sabbath life is a posture that shapes how we are supposed to engage all of life. So some of us might remember earlier in the summer, we talked about how God's power is generative. It doesn't rely on a lesser power to exist. So God's power creates, and it creates out of nothing. Like, it doesn't need less power just to show itself as powerful. This is what the whole creation narrative is about. God creates out of nothing. He doesn't need other things to create. The same goes for God when he rests. Even in God's rest and delight, in his manua, God creates for us an invitation to delight and celebrate with the rest of creation. So the early church fathers, people who came way before us, knew this so well. Gregory the Great, he says, For us, the true Sabbath is the person of our Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says the Sabbath is. Justin Martyr, he's another one. He says, talking about, um, he keeps perpetual Sabbath. He says, it's not just a day. Keep perpetual Sabbath. And he said, in repentance and in relationship with Christ, we can trust that we are keeping the true Sabbath of God. Tertullian says the same thing. Augustine, he goes and he talks, um, he says how life in Christ is one that is a life that has fulfilled law. So, life in Christ, the one who has fulfilled the law, becomes our Sabbath. Christ becomes our Sabbath. 
And that makes us have to reimagine what Jesus means when he says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A couple friends have said it this way. Jesus is the new Sabbath, made for us, given that we might forget our work and live life as God lives it. Jesus is the new Sabbath, who sweated in the garden for our salvation, so that we would have rest from our works. So friends, as followers of Christ, the Sabbath isn't meant to be a mechanism of oppression, like how the Pharisees were using it. And it's also not supposed to generate more productivity from us. Right? The Sabbath is not a Christian plan to be able to have better work-life balance. So I know it's Labor Day, which is supposed to celebrate the American worker. But the Sabbath isn't supposed to be a break we take for the purpose of being able to, to do our jobs better. You may be better at your job after taking a break. That is true. But that's not the point of the Sabbath. Hear me. The Sabbath is meant to help us root our lives in the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. So that in every season of life, be it summer or fall, calm seasons or hectic seasons, bustle or relaxation, in all of it, we might be able to join with God in delighting and celebrating and resting in the wonder of the world around us. So even if you don't have the economic, the economic means to be able to take a day off, the Sabbath is still meant to be an invitation created by God as the climax of creation to rest, to delight, and to celebrate in the world around you. So hear me, I know how hard it can be to rest in the delight and joy of the world when life is going crazy for you. So this past week has been one of those weeks where everything seemed to go haywire. So I had some serious sleep trouble on Tuesday, and then Wednesday, my car got backed into and then later on Wednesday, um, a computer system crashed. Uh, then we had flooding at my family's business back home that I was trying to manage from here. And they're in Toronto. I also had to set up another computer system that crashed, um, crashed back there as well. So there was just so many different things going on. And like then, these tasks that should have taken 30 minutes or so, ended up taking hours on top of that to be done. It was one of those weeks where life just felt like a wave, and then I was in the undertow, just like rolling around. I never even came up, never even got out of the wave. So all week, as I've been listening and praying about what God would have me say to us this morning, like the irony is not lost on me when I'm talking about Sabbath this morning. Of all the weeks where... God would place Sabbath on my heart. This has been a week where, if the sermon was meant for no one else in this room, it was meant for me. <laughs> in the midst of a really tough week and an unpleasant week, I felt God's invitation 
to rest in him and to join with him in manua rest. I found renewed strength in Christ, the one who makes and is making all things new. Now, we don't want to be naive. If you've experienced real trauma, this can sound like empty words. But don't miss the thing, or the fact, that the thing Jesus does most on the Sabbath, and most often on the Sabbath, is to heal on the Sabbath. God's Sabbath delight that we participate in through our joining with Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, is a delight in our wholeness and in the wholeness of all creation. So as Sabbath people, what we do when we come together every week here is to participate in the generative work of God that makes us more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit. This is also why we do Sabbath work. I know that might sound like an oxymoron, Sabbath and work, especially if you come from the context that I grew up in. They don't mesh. But Sabbath work is the kind of work that Christ does over and over again on the Sabbath and throughout his entire life. We do things like community meals in Lake City. We have conversations that are tough. We aim to serve people in our neighborhoods to help cultivate the wholeness and delight of God. So it's not just in our lives, but in the lives of our neighbors. Wholeness is what we're trying to help cultivate. So I'm telling you, Sabbath is not some kind of happiness pill, or it's not like a mental gymnastic we do to become optimistic about life. It's not, it's not that. Instead, and this is a big claim, Sabbath living is participation in the very life of God as we rest and delight and celebrate God's presence in the world around us. So to close, let me get, let me get really uh, practical here. In a moment, we're going to take some time to pray. And if you need time to pray by yourself, by all means, take that time and do so. Obey the Lord and let him speak to you this morning. But also, if you feel comfortable doing so, I'd like you to find one or two people with whom you'd be willing to share an area of your life where you would like to be able to live more Sabbathly over this coming fall as we move into this next season. So an area of your life where you'd like to be able to rest and delight and celebrate God in the midst of your work, in the midst of your life, your relationships. Is there a specific area in your life that has been draining for you in the past? Some area that you would like to be able to delight in? Is there a task that you have to do and you habitually have to do it? And it just makes you hate the world. It's so draining. Is there something that you have to do like that? Is there a relationship in your life that fills you with dread anytime you meet this person or these people, anytime you encounter these people? It could be at work, it could be a family member, an acquaintance. Maybe it's your commute. There's no joy whatsoever in your commute. 
in your work, in tasks that you have to do. Ask God to help you find rest and delight in these things. Maybe it's a sense of guilt that you feel whenever you have time to actually rest for yourself. Maybe it's when you try and rest, you feel like there's always something you should be doing or you could be doing, and you can't actually rest. Maybe it's more basic than this. Maybe the Sabbath can't and doesn't mean anything because you haven't learned how to rest or delight or celebrate who God has made you to be in the first place. Like Before you look at what you can rest from, you haven't even learned to rest in who God has made you to be. There's options here, friends. What might be something that you normally fail to delight in, that you'd like to give to God this morning and say, God, as we enter the fall, help me to be able to rest and delight in the experience of wholeness that you're trying to offer me and give me here in fill in the blank. God, I want to be able to find my rest in you. Show me how I can live a Sabbath life. And make me whole so that I can join with you in your making of the world whole. Does it sound like a plan? Okay, let's open ourselves up to the delight of God. Let's start living the Sabbath in a way that allows God to help us experience the beauty of the world around us. So again, we're going to, let, let me pray for us, and then um, we'll pray for about three minutes in groups, and then we'll come and come to the table and experience Christ here, the body and blood broken and shed for us. But let's pray. Holy God, in the midst of our busyness, we come to you with others and with Christ by the Spirit and ask you to show us how we might be able to have Sabbath rest in our lives. How we might be able to rest and delight and celebrate the world around us, even when there seems like there's no time to do so. Be with us as we move into the fall and empower us to do good work. May we live lives that are faithful. And we pray this in your name. Amen.